and look at uh, the life of uh, this man of God and the story that he shares about this time in the nation of Israel. Uh, so I'm curious as we start out this morning, how many of you have heard of the phrase, the writing on the wall? Uh, if you have, just pop into the chat. Um, you might have heard it as the handwriting on the wall or the writing on the wall. Uh, it's, it's a pretty common phrase. Um, and, and when you look at it online, uh, it's used to talk about something that's inevitable, something that's in, it's imminent and it's going to be coming, often in, in a negative way, uh, like pending doom kind of thing. Um, and when you look at it online, uh, it doesn't matter what source you look at, you'll probably find them referencing the passages that we're going to look at in Daniel. It's not one of the stories that you often have in your Sunday school classes with your kids. I mean, it's just not one of those ones where you kind of go, oh, this is a great uh, feel-good story, like Daniel and the, uh, the story we're going to look at next week, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's, it's not one of those. It's, it's a little more um, dark, I guess, in, in how it turns out uh, for the, the main character here. But it is part of the Daniel narrative. Um, so it's an expression that we're familiar with, um, but it's also a, a very good uh, lesson for us to be learning today. So we're going to continue through the book of Daniel, and we're up to chapter 5. So if you want to tap on your app or, or flip in your Bible to uh, Daniel chapter 5, we're almost halfway through the, through the book, and, and Daniel's broken down into two sections. So the first part is this narrative. Uh, commentary of the stories of um, the way that God is interacting with certain leaders and certain people. And the second half of the book is a lot about uh, the visions that Daniel has for the days that are yet to come. Um, so the events that are going to take place in the future. Um, and there's two major events that we're going to look at in the, the narrative part of Daniel. And this is one of them. And, and uh, so Daniel chapter five, verse one. Um, so far, everything that we studied has taken place during the reign of one particular king. And so does uh, any of the kids that are out there, tell your parents what you think the answer is. Who's been the king so far in the book of Daniel that we've been studying about? And then they can pop it into the chat. I'll give you just a second. So who is the primary king during the time of the stories of Daniel that we've been looking at? See which is the first family to pop in. Yeah, they can't figure out how to type or all the kids are not paying attention. There it is. Lucas says Nebuchadnezzar. And Lucas is right. Uh, so far, everything has happened under Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he's the one who laid siege to Jerusalem. He took all the best people to Babylon. He's the one under whom Daniel and the company refused to eat the king's food and drink his wine. Uh, he's the one who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. He's the one who boasted in his glory and was humiliated. He built that big uh, tower, 90 feet tall, and wanted everybody to worship. And uh, he's the one who turned into uh, basically like a wild animal, eating grass and letting his hair grow like feathers and his nails like the claws of a bird. Um, so that's been all Nebuchadnezzar. But in chapter five, there's this shift. Nebuchadnezzar is no longer in the picture. He's gone. Um, and we focus to a different king. So Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a feast, a great feast, for 1,000 of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. Now, the New Living Translation adds that many years later. If you don't have the New Living Translation, you're not going to see that. But it gives us a clue that some time has passed here. Uh, between chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar is eating grass, um, and chapter 5, where Belshazzar um, is, is in power, there's this, this long, really long period of time. Um, as a matter of fact, David, you and I were talking about this. In the beginning stories of Daniel, Daniel would have been like a teenager, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, probably 15, 20, people think. Yep. And then by this time, he's probably how old now? Well, we're going to see, doesn't it say his, his name? He's going to be around 80, around 80 years old. Um, yeah. It's a big jump. It's like talking about a teenager now and then also just jumping to the point where they're an octogenarian and it's like, and then there's the whole big gap in the middle. So there's, there's this really big gap. Um, Belshazzar is not the king that came into power right after Nebuchadnezzar. Um, you have to remember that the book of Daniel 
is a book for the Jews in exile. It's not a historical chronicle. It's not this book that's going to go through every king and every step of the nation of Israel during this time. It's meant to relay certain stories that relate to not only the Jews in their exile, but in the bigger picture of God's mission and God's purpose in, on this earth. And so the stories that are highlighted um, are meant to be focused on those few things, zeroing in on those things, not focusing in on this king came after this king of, of, of Babylon, after this king of Babylon to this king of Persia, et cetera. Um, so uh, why this story is included becomes very apparent when we see what happens. I just want to um, add that it is historical in that we are meant to take the events, the, the narrative literally, and, you know, it, it, they are historical events, but they, it focuses, like you said, on events that are pertinent to Jewish history, not the Babylonian and Persian history. So that's why it kind of skips through a bunch of stuff um, when there wasn't a lot happening that impacted the Jews a lot. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So let's, let's continue reading Daniel five verses one through four. Um, I'll have David read that too, since he's, he's a good reader. (laughs) You always say that. I do. Okay. So it says King Belshazzar, I'll just start from the beginning. King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. I love that it specifies their gods that were made of these inanimate objects, not the living God. Yeah, absolutely. And at first, though, you read that list and you're almost drawn back to that image of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had because it's the bronze and you have the gold and the bronze and silver. But then they throw in this wood and stone and you're like, OK, it's not the same thing. So don't start drawing conclusions back to there. It's not what it's meant to be. Um, it's exactly what David said. It's the inanimate objects. So. This scene seems like it's totally out of place in the storyline of Daniel, but Daniel actually kind of set this up for us to let us know this was coming back in the beginning of the book of Daniel. So if you kind of scroll back to Daniel chapter one and verse two, um, as we read the initial story of them being deported and then being taken into captivity, there's a detail there that Daniel highlights that's setting us up for the story. So in in Daniel one, um, I'll start in verse one and read verses one and two. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. That part of the story seemed really out of place when we were in Daniel chapter one. Like, why is he mentioning these idols from the temple? Why, why is that so significant? But Daniel was planting a seed that he's now going back to, that he's going to kind of harvest for us and tell us why he put that there. Daniel's a great writer. And this, this one seemingly insignificant detail of the opening book now is, takes the center stage and even becomes the cause for an idiom that we use to this day with the writing on the wall. Um, it's because of these articles that this story is, is becoming uh, the front and center part of, of uh, the narrative. Um, so those items are the focal point. And they're, they were dedicated to God. And this is the significant part that I think comes in here. They were made holy and they were set apart for Yahweh. Second um, Chronicles chapter five, verse one says all the work that Solomon did for the Lord's temple was completed. So remember, David was not able to build the temple. Solomon did. And then Solomon brought all the consecrated things of his father, David, the silver, the gold and all the utensils. And they put them and he put them in the treasury of God's temple. Those items were to be used specifically for the worship and the pleasure of Yahweh. And they were taken by Nebuchadnezzar but never used by Nebuchadnezzar, at least not that we know of. 
Uh, now these items are dragged out by Belshazzar in a drunken whim. Um, and so you have to ask yourself, you know, why? What was Belshazzar thinking? Why is it so significant that he wanted those items to party with, with his friends? Um, and I, I don't know. For In my mind, it went a couple different ways when I started asking that question. The first one is, I mean, I bet they look pretty cool. And they were expensive. They were made from gold. It could have been a way just to revel in the opulence that he had acquired as, as king, uh, that he inherited really from Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, perhaps he thought himself to be on the level of a god. And using items reserved for gods then would be appropriate in his mind. And I think that that's really where it plays out. And maybe it's a little bit of both. I and mean, there's a lot of pride going on here in either case. And pride is certainly one of those themes that's carried through the book of Daniel as we look at these pagan kings versus Yahweh. Um, well, and not to mention the wine. It's very, it's very specific to point out that he was under the influence of the wine. And I, that's, there's a pattern there that you see um, even in other Persian kings, like with Esther. Um, but I'd, I'd like to make a list sometime of all of the bad decisions that kings in the Bible made um, under the influence of too much wine. Uh, and then cross-link them with like the Proverbs and other wisdom about wine. So it's just interesting. It is interesting. There's actually a verse about it's not for kings to have strong drink. Let's yeah. lest they make stupid decisions is basically exactly. the, yeah. the verse. It's not a direct quote. Okay. Um, <laughs> but that's essentially what it's saying. <laughs> yeah. So, so Daniel five uh, verse five, it continues. And so as they're drinking and they, they take those, those glasses, they fill them with wine and they're drinking to them and they're praising their gods made of the same things that they're drinking out of. Um, at that moment, it says in verse five, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. And the king shouted to bring in the mediums, the Chaldeans and diviners. And he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this inscription, and gives me its interpretation, will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck, and have third highest position in the kingdom. So all of the king's wise men came in. But none could read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him. Then King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face turned pale, and his nobles were bewildered. I mean, you have to really love the description of what goes on with Net, with uh, Belshazzar here, right? So here's this king who's reveling in, look how great I am, and I'm, you know, I'm like a god, and he he turns pale. I mean, he he soils himself. So we would say something like, you know, he messed his pants. I mean, he literally like messed his pants. He was so scared. And I thought, oh man, that's that's quite a detail to record in a book that's going to be around for thousands of years. Don't you think? I mean, that's not the legacy I want uh, for me. So he turned pale, he soiled himself, his knees were knocking together. He's, he's obviously terrified. So we have this drunken, pale, smelly, dirty, terrified king. And I think it's interesting to note the difference between the description that Daniel gives Belshazzar here and the way that Daniel went out of his way to protect the reputation of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, it, it does not appear as though Daniel has the same concern for protecting this particular king as he did Nebuchadnezzar. With Nebuchadnezzar, he he didn't want to tell Nebuchadnezzar the bad news. He didn't want to, he wanted the, Nebuchadnezzar to be prosperous, and he tried to get Nebuchadnezzar to repent. But in this particular story, it's played out totally different. Uh, we get this terrible side uh, perspective of Belshazzar. So the king calls in all of these people that we're familiar with now, the mediums, the Chaldeans, the diviners, and, uh, and none of them had a clue. And then we're introduced to the next character, who is the, the queen mother uh, in this case. Um, Maybe this I'll have to was like this has happened like three times already, right? <laughs> uh, this where the king is asking for an interpretation, and none of his normal magicians and diviners and Chaldeans can can figure it out. Um, so that's definitely 
a pattern. But yeah, again, this one is a little bit uglier overall. The whole scene is, is like deja vu, but even worse. <laughs> um, Dad, did you, were you going to say you want me to read this passage? Yeah, but I think that that's also a good point that you bring up, that it's like the same story, only worse, because that's the same pattern we saw with the nation Israel. Mm. Um, totally. You know, each time from, from the time that man sinned, we see the same story repeating itself, only worse, and a little bit worse, and a little bit worse, until a point that where it led to this exile. So, so yeah, it's not surprising that we have that same pattern here with these pagan kings. Great point, yeah. So if we continue reading in chapter 5, we're at uh, verse 10. Because of the outcry of the king and his nobles, the queen came to the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has a spirit of the holy gods in him. In the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the, the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one the king named Belteshazzar, was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and intelligence, and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. <laughs> I like that one. Therefore, summon Daniel, and he will give the interpretation. I think I like the queen. Um, I think I like her a lot. Uh, now she's actually believed to be the mother of Belshazzar, not one of his wives. Uh, his wives were with him in the drunken party. And apparently she had no desire to be a part of that party. She was not at the banquet hall. Uh, but she remembered and understood what took place before and seems to have a wisdom that the king lacked, um, which Again, I think they're bringing that out. And I'm not sure if her reference to Nebuchadnezzar as the king and, and bringing him up the fact that he was the king before um, and what he did was, was in any way meant to be a dig. Like, uh, unlike you, Belshazzar, he, he was wise and he understood who was wise in his kingdom. And he did, you know, um, I don't know if it was meant to be a dig, but to me, it sure comes across that way. Um, well, she was Nebuchadnezzar's uh, daughter, right? Yes. So that's another <laughs> kind of interesting dynamic there. Yeah, she was believed to be yeah Nebuchadnezzar's daughter at that point. Um, so uh, in in this passage, um, we get this idea that Nebuchadnezzar is 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 gone, but the stories of what took place have been passed down through uh, even these generations. As a matter of fact, Daniel's going to call out. Uh, Belshazzar in saying that he knew these stories as well. Um, so I think Belshazzar is just so terrified he doesn't even know what to do. Um, it's believed that Daniel at this point is about 80 years old, uh, which I think was really important. And, uh, and I think it's important that the story of Daniel also seems to grow. It went from a man who can interpret dreams to, as David kind of chuckled and pointed out, let's see, he can explain riddles, he can solve problems, he's not just an extraordinary spirit, he's got extraordinary knowledge and intelligence. And so the list of Daniel's accolades just keep growing. Actually, um, sounds a lot like Solomon in his heyday. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And I think that, again, that's intentional to point out what God does for those who love him and fear him. Um, so this 80-year-old guy has seen a lot. And it's obviously not going to be phased by very much. So he gets brought before the king, verse 13. Daniel was brought before the king. And the king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard that you have a spirit of the gods in you and that insight, intelligence, and extraordinary wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men and mediums were brought before me to read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me. But they could not give its interpretation. However, I have heard about you that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation, you will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. And then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts and give your rewards to somebody else. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make its interpretation known to him. I, I wanna pause here just for a second. Um, 
I think Daniel was actually in a higher position previously. So even though this is a, a kind of a neat offer to be third highest, I think he was actually in a higher position than Nebuchadnezzar. So it's still kind of a demotion from where he was. But, but Daniel's obviously not interested in uh, the money or the options. At 80 years old, he's probably had his share of being in charge of things and being an important person. Um, he, he just wants to tell the story of what's, what's going on here. Um, and so he gives him a history lesson starting in verse 18. David, why don't you read 18 through 24? Okay. So this is Daniel speaking. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted and kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from people. His mind was like an animal's. He lived with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like cattle and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the Most High God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. That's basically a summary of the previous chapter, which we went through last week. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand, but you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he sent the hand, and this writing was inscribed. Yeah, so Daniel starts by giving Belshazzar a mini history lesson. And, and man, does that sound familiar? Because when you go back to the nation of Israel, it seems like every time one of the leaders confronted Israel with their sin, they would start with this history lesson. And even in the New Testament, when the apostles are um, confronting the religious leaders, they take them back to the, the prophets and say, your fathers did this and you did this. And they give them this whole history lesson and then say, but, but here's the problem that you need to deal with. I think it's interesting that this is now happening with a pagan king. Like they're being treated exactly the way God's people have been treated up to this point. Um, because you now have this, this history lesson and this moral lesson being brought up before the king. Um, but, and I think that's just a reminder that the justice of God does not just extend to the people of God. The standards, the decrees, and the truth of God are universal and they're eternal. And they apply even to those that choose to ignore God. Uh, in other words, just because somebody doesn't recognize uh, God doesn't mean that they are exempt from his authority and his rule, um, his justice, as well as his mercy. Um, so to see them treated the same way that God's people were is in line with God's nature. He is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, and he is control of all things, um, not just the things inside the realm of those that believe in him, but the entire world um, that we know. So, so Daniel approached the king about the dream, and... Um, which when he approached Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he wished the dream upon Nebuchadnezzar's enemies. He didn't want to see anything bad happen to Nebuchadnezzar. However, in this conversation with Belshazzar, uh, Belteshazzar has nothing but charges to levy. Uh, you exalted yourself against the Lord of heavens. You defiled the things dedicated to Yahweh. You worshiped and praised your handmade gods. You did not acknowledge the one who gives and sustains life. And therefore, God has done this. Um, so I think it's interesting that Daniel seems to be very in tune with why all this is happening, even though he was removed from the situation. Um, and he knew what, but he knew what was going on. And uh, so it was obviously very apparent across 
the realm of what this king was doing. Um, so Daniel gets in front of the king and says, okay, here's, here's what you've done this wrong. And here's what this vision means. Now, in the vision with Nebuchadnezzar, it was the watchers, remember that new word that we're really not sure all of what that means. It was the watchers who pronounced the sentence of judgment from the Most High God. In this passage, it's Daniel who makes the pronouncement of judgment from the Most High God, which is very common for the prophets to do. Um, so in Daniel 5, uh, we continue reading. And this is the writing that was inscribed. I'm not going to be able to pronounce this the way it's supposed to be, probably. Um, David, do you want to give that? A, how, how would you pronounce that? You're the one that's studying Hebrew. Yeah, but this is Aramaic. I haven't, I haven't looked at the uh, many, many Tekel Parson. <laughs> exactly how I would say it. Exactly how I would say it. Um, many, many Tekel Parson. Uh, it's, it's an interpretation, and he tells him what it is. This is actually written in Aramaic, uh, which is interesting because the Chaldeans would speak Aramaic, Yet when the magicians and the Chaldeans were brought in to, to explain the handwriting, it says specifically that they could not read it. Well, Yet the king should have spoken Aramaic too. It is the Babylonian language. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if they just didn't want to or if they didn't understand what it just it means they didn't understand what it meant or if God veiled it from them. Um, but it was many, many tekel parson. And, and this is the interpretation of the message. Many means God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Perez, it says here, or Parson, means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then Belshazzar gave an order, and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, time out. There's a lot <laughs> happening here. Um, so these three words, uh, anytime you have in, in these chronicles of the history, when you have a phrase repeated, it's meant to be an emphasis. Um, so when you have many, many, it, it's, it's numbered. It means numbered. And so there's a specific uh, emphasis on that over even the weighed and the divided. It's numbered, numbered, um, weighed and divided are those four words. So the numbered would mean his days were coming short. The, the weighed, that's another phrase that we actually hear in a lot of movies. You'll hear somebody quote, you know, you've been weighed and found deficient. Um, and and found that- wanting. Yeah. What's that, David? Weighed and found wanting, I think is the, the KJV yeah. classic version of that. You've been weighed <laughs> and found wanting. Yeah. So Nebuchadnezzar had a year before his sentence was carried out. So D Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream and a year passed before Nebuchadnezzar actually heard from God and then was, uh, had the sentence passed on to him where he became like a wild animal. Uh, Belshazzar had hours. Uh, that night he was killed. So numbered, I can understand the emphasis on number because it happened really fast. Um, so this x this this uh, sentence I guess I want to call it the sentence that was present that was passed on to Belshazzar was one that Daniel did not say may this happen to your enemies like he did with Nebuchadnezzar it was not uh, there was not a chance for repentance apparently the the crime was grievous enough that it required immediate action at this point but we don't know what took place previously in Belshazzar's reign. We don't know what other things he might have done, but we know that at this point, God was done with him and was going to now make a big change. Uh, for the Jews, that meant another transition. It meant another king during exile. It meant uncertain times and an uncertainty about another leader. Um, and I think that this is one of those um, passages that we kind of can resonate with in our current day. Um, we have many people questioning the events of our day and our government's authority to take away freedoms during a crisis. Uh, but in Daniel's day, the king was that authority. And each king had the ability and influence to drastically change life for those whom they ruled. 
And when we read about the rise and the fall of a kingdom, it, it would have been epic. I mean, it would literally turn your world upside down. You have new rules, you have new currencies, you have new gods, you have new leaders, you have new military, you have new uh, boundaries. Uh, everything would be totally different because now there's a new ruler. And, and Daniel includes the changing of multiple kings and even multiple empires. And yet the history that he relays is not about those kings or those kingdoms. The first half of this book is about the work of God in his people during those times. And even in the, the lives of people who weren't his people during those times. The second half of his book is about what God is going to do in the future with the Messiah and the future kingdom. And Daniel understood that every season is a part of the divine blueprint and God has a plan for all of it. Now our tendency is to focus our lives on, on us and our plans, our crises, our situations. And, and often I think we want to impose the will and work of God on our current moment in time. We want God to deal with this situation and to rectify this scenario and to work in this one space. Um, and the disciples who were with Jesus were no different. We saw that in their lives. We're, we're really not much different than them. Um, matter of fact, when the disciples met with the resurrected Jesus, there's a conversation that took place in Acts chapter one, verse four. We have the recording of it. Um, Jesus in, starts out in verse four. While he was with them, that's Jesus, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority." But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the disciples were wondering, Jesus, are you going to fix everything? Are you going to restore everything? Are you going to take us out of this oppressive rule and give us freedom eventually? Um, is this the time when we will finally be vindicated, when our cause will be your primary cause, when we will again be restored to being your people? Um, and you establish your kingdom. And Jesus' answer is that God's timeline is not to be our concern. God's mission is. So God has a big picture timeline, but we do not know it. And honestly, we do not need to know it other than to know that each day that passes gets us one step closer to a new heaven and a new earth and the defeat of sin. But because that timeline is getting shorter, we have to stay focused on doing what God desires, and that's joining him on his mission of reconciling people to him. And that's really what Jesus was saying to the disciples. Listen, you want to know the timelines, but God has a timeline that started back in the beginning of time and ends at the end of time, which we can't even comprehend because God transcends time. And that timeline is not what we should be focusing on. We need to be focusing on what we need to be doing and how we need to be living and how we need to be sharing him and, and of Christ with the world around us. That should be our focus. So here's Daniel writing these book, this book, talking about all these kings, and he's giving us bits and pieces of a timeline. But what he's really trying to remind us of is the work and the mission of God through the people of God that he's continuing to do, that he promised back in Genesis and will fulfill someday completely in the book of Revelation. Um, so that's, that's where this story fits into it. And I think it, it fits us well because we, we see our society now and our crisis and life is upside down because of a pandemic and we've got all these different uh, restrictions and rules and, and all these different guidelines we have to follow. And we're like, oh, when is this going to be over? When is it going to get back to normal? We want God to fix everything now so we can go back to normal. Um, but we've only been in this, what, a couple of months? Uh, it seems like an eternity to us. So maybe it's a good time for us to consider a bigger picture perspective of the timeline of God mm -hmm. and realize that uh, there's a lot more to it than just that, which is what Dave, I think part of what Daniel was trying to show us. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So at this at this point in the story, it, it, chapter five doesn't really explain how Belshazzar died. It just says he died that night, um, and he died because the Medes and the Persians um, took over. They conquered Babylon, and so you have that's the the new empire that's that's taking over. And so they're also now the empire that's going to be ruling over the Israelites. There's because they're still in exile, but now they're under new authority, new management. Um, so this is kind of going to be a new chapter in the history of the exile. Um, and you do get the very last verse in chapter five. It says, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. Uh, so that's, that's going to be the next king. Um, so kind of backing up again, Daniel started with Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon at the beginning of the exile skips to this quick story of Belshazzar for this kind of transition story. And now we have Darius as the king. It's a whole new empire. And that's where we're going to leave off um, with the story for today. And we'll pick up again um, for the kind of the final big story in Daniel, uh, probably the most famous story, um, the reason for our graphic. Uh, but because we have this kind of transition this shift in the kingdoms and we have this kind of leap forward in time. Daniel was a teenager. Now all of a sudden he's 80. So we thought it might be helpful to kind of step back for a minute. And I know Mike just talked about not focusing on the timeline, but we're going to look at the timeline <laughs> in the sense that we're, we're, we're going to kind of look at the broader scope of things and try to get a sense of the chronology of events uh, that happen in Daniel in relation to some of the other books. So this is where I'm going to get really nerdy. Um, and I'll explain why I think, you know, it's important to kind of think about the timeline, even if that's not the main focus. Um, so I'm going to be throwing a bunch of dates at you. Remember, we're talking about BC dates. So the larger numbers are further back in time. Smaller numbers are further ahead in time, closer to Jesus' birth, closer to us in the, the writing of the New Testament. Um, so I remember the, the official period of exile was promised to last 70 years and it did um, but that period of time leading up to it was also significant and related to the exile and it didn't even all happen at once at the beginning or the end of it we had multiple deportations from jerusalem to babylon we had multiple ways of people returning from babylon to jerusalem um, which happens a little bit um, further on in the story um, so it was kind of this ongoing process over several years on both ends and if you look at all the writings that accumulated uh, in response to these events and during these events, you're looking at a period of at least 100 years. But if you see this timeline that Mike is showing, it's really like a 200-year period that was directly impacted by the exile. And these, these events were very formative, and that's why we have so much of our Old Testament is dedicated to talking about stuff that happened in this time. And... So let's just look at this visual for a minute. Um, I'm trying to make it a little bit bigger so I can see it. All right, so you, you notice it starts off with Josiah way back in 640. Uh, and I think that's included because he was really the last good king um, in Judah. He actually followed God. He instituted a bunch, <clears throat> a bunch of reform, tried to turn people back to God. Um, and then you have... The first deportation showing up around 605. And you see Jeremiah, the prophet, is active during that whole time leading up to that. So from the time of jo Josiah, uh, he was a, a contemporary of Josiah, he saw kind of the whole downfall of Judah. <clears throat> and you see Daniel kind of overlapping Jeremiah too then. Um, and then you eventually see the second deportation in 597, and that's a pretty solid date. Um, and the fall of Jerusalem uh, shortly after that, the destruction of the temple, and we read about that. And that all happened during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I, I do want to uh, pause and just kind of provide this caveat. The purpose of showing you this is not so that you can remember all these numbers. I, I know very few people just see dates and remember them. I'm not one of those people. And 
besides a lot, some of these dates are not really that clear cut anyway. Um, some of them like the deportation in 597 is pretty well documented by multiple sources. So we can see that pretty clearly, but others are, you know, they could have been, they could shift a little bit forward or back. Um, more the the purpose of this visual is to kind of get a sense of, okay, yeah, there were all of within this 200 year period, whether some things were shifted around a little bit, all of this stuff happened, all these big names like Daniel and Jeremiah, you'll see Esther in there. All of these people kind of were within a few generations of each other. Uh, and it all happened during the exile period. And sometimes we lose sight. I think when we look at stories individually, like we look at Daniel uh, and we look at Esther, we look at Nehemiah and Ezra and the rebuilding of the temple and the, and the wall <clears throat> and don't realize how they kind of all fit and flow together. Um, so you see Daniel kind of right at the kind of going from the fall of Jerusalem, um, almost up to where the, the temple began. Um, I'm not sure if we know if he was alive, um, at that point. I'm not, I haven't actually looked that far to see if we know what year he died, but he could have very well been around still when the temple was, began to be built. Um, so during that time you have the prophets Ezra, um, Malachi, uh, the temple completed in 517. And then around that time is the story of Esther being made queen. And if you remember, Esther is made king under a Persian king, Xerxes. Uh, so this is happening. She was probably a couple generations after Daniel. Um, could have been as little as, you know, one generation removed. Uh, but it was during that Persian um, occupation of Babylon that Esther was made queen under Xerxes. Um, and then you have Nehemiah uh, and, and Nehemiah and Ezra were contemporaries. Ezra was kind of there at the beginning. He led some of the first groups of people back to uh, Jerusalem from Babylon. And then Nehemiah was a little bit younger when he got on the scene. Ezra was an old man by then, but they, they, were, they were in Jerusalem at the same time. Uh, so you see all these things kind of lining up in this 200 year period of time. Uh, do, do you have anything else you wanted to point out or add to that, Mike? Oh, there's so much. Uh, understand that this is just a small picture of what's going on. Um, David and I actually pulled up one of the chart programs that we have that shows all the Bible timelines. It's so overwhelming that we literally looked at it and we're like, I can't, I can't even focus. There's too many, too many things to look at. Um, but I think some of the interesting things that we do lose sight of, things that you pointed out, of what else is going on at this time and how significant the exile is in the history of, of this nation. Um, Esther is one of those interesting books. We might actually do a, a series on Esther together uh, a little bit later on in the, in the year. Um, Esther is one of those books where you don't actually have the mention of God in the book. And you're thinking, well, why isn't Yahweh mentioned in the book of Esther? It's, it's written during a, a, a part of the exile, and it's written, it makes sense why Esther was then presented to a king, a foreign king. It doesn't make sense if there's not in exile, but we forget about the history of how all that fits together, and even how we see God um, preserving his people through that story. In each of these things, as we look at them, the temple being, uh, being rebuilt, God is using a pagan king to rebuild the temple um, and, and issuing that decree to rebuild the temple. Um, why? You know, what, what would put that on, on a king's heart other than God? And that's brought out in there. Um, so everything that was destroyed is slowly being rebuilt. And I, for me, that's one of the lessons that I guess um, I hadn't thought about too much. For, for instance, the exile said it was going to be 70 years. Okay, well, at the end of 70 years, life went back to normal, right? I mean, it's like, poof, everything's good. They're back to a nation. It's like, well, no, um, it took hundreds of years for things to, to get rebuilt and for people to be uh, restored back as a nation. Uh, it was devastating for them for such a long, for generations and generations. Mm -hmm. um, so that, I think that's one of the things that I caught in, in this timeline. It was, it was generations. It wasn't as simple as just 70 years because of all this other stuff. And 200 years is a long time. Uh, it, and, you know, you brought up the other day, Mike, you remember 
celebrating the bicentennial um, of the United States. Um, and <laughs> thinking of that seems like the beginning of the United States was so, so long ago. <laughs> so the 200 years is a long time. So it might make sense that, you know, there's this huge body of literature um, of Hebrew scripture that took place during these 200 years. But to get even more of a perspective, I really want to think about how small that 200 years period of time really is in, in relation to the rest of Israel's history. Um, so we're talking about, you know, 400 to uh, 600 to 400 BC, right? And so Israel, the, if we're talking about the history of Israel, it started with Abraham. And it's estimated that God's promise to Abraham was made around 1730 BC, 1730. Uh, and his grandson, Jacob, moved to Egypt because of, his, because of Jacob's son, Joseph. Um, and you know how all that you know, ended up, they grew into a, a large body of people there in Egypt. And then it, was, it wasn't until 1300 BC, so 430 years after God's promise to Abraham is when Jacob's descendants moved out of Egypt back to the, the promised land. And that whole, the move itself, it was their own fault, but that took another 40 years to even get there. Uh, were you going to say something? I was going to say that, that 400 years that they were in um, Egypt, we don't have many writings. No. You have this 200 200- period with all these writings of exile and this 400 years that they were oppressed under Pharaoh. We don't have really anything other than they entered in under good terms and they got oppressed by Pharaoh and then God led them out. That's like it. Yep. You don't have any writings then. That's it. So you have the Exodus then. That's the, when they moved out of Egypt. It was around 1300. And then you have King David. You know, they're, one of their first great kings was from, you know, 10, 10 to 970. So that's 300 years later after they've reached the problem, after they began the Exodus. Um, and then, you know, the kingdom was divided under David's children and grandchildren around 931. So that didn't take too long for the fallout of his consequences to take place. But then it wasn't until another 200 years after David that Israel, the northern kingdom, Israel, fell to Assyria. So that was around 740, 722 um, was when Israel was deported to the Assyrian Empire. Now, that's, that was before anything happened with Judah, because then the first deportation, like we saw in that timeline, the first deportation of Judah, the southern kingdom, to go to Babylon was almost 150 years after Israel was exiled. So that's a huge gap of time uh, where those where Judah is kind of totally isolated from Israel. And you actually see during this whole exile period, the, what, the archaeological findings and the, the writings that we find from Israel versus Judah, you can kind of see a sort of divergence where they, their cultures and even the language and certain w- ways they use their names kind of started to, to drift apart from each other because it's so, such a long period of time. Uh, then you have Jerusalem falling in 586, and then the Jews returning to Jerusalem in 539. So <laughs> you have these pretty huge spans of time around the time, even just in um, in Daniel and in Kings and Chronicles around the time of the Exodus, you have these big chunks of time that are covered in some cases just by a couple verses. And then even bigger spans of time uh, from Genesis to Exodus and to Kings and Chronicles and then to Daniel. The exile happens 700 years, roughly, after the exodus from Egypt. And Jerusalem fell over 400 years after David established it. And yet, then, once you get to the end of the Hebrew scripture, at the end of the Old Testament, there's another 400-year gap before Jesus shows up. So, what's the point in, in bringing all of this up? I, I do think that, first of all, it's just, it's helpful to, to look at and think about these timelines just as a way to, especially that one, the visual of this 200-year period, just to kind of wrap our minds around the story a little bit better. Um, and to realize that in terms of scale, the Old Testament is, is a big story. It covers literally thousands of years. 
and I've seen people put together, you know, different charts and timelines and explanations of the, the chronology of things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, because it's kind of the, the same idea. And the MCU maybe arguably doesn't have quite as big of a story as the Bible, um, but it, it's a pretty epic story. It involves multiple universes, different timelines, and this whole vast array of characters with their own origins and their development. And they all have these interlap, overlapping, intersecting, colliding storylines. And you can get all caught up in the details of one individual hero or even a villain's story. But to understand why it matters or why it doesn't matter in the bigger picture, you kind of have to do that mental exercise of stepping back and looking at the whole storyline from that perspective almost i i know i do every time you go into or walk away from a marvel movie you're kind of going through oh that that relates to that and that relates to that and what what was happening then um so that's just kind of what we're part of what we're trying to do is just wrap our minds around the complexity uh, and the vastness of the story and how, how daniel is fitting into the grand scheme of things um but then by doing this too it kind of goes back to what mike was talking about before it's it's helpful to look at the timeline, not to focus or obsess over it, um, but to use it as, as a reality check uh, for, our, for our own lives and where we fit into the grand scheme of, of life. And I think it's kind of humbling to think that today, you know, around the world, the average lifespan is around 80 years, depending on where you are in the world. Um, and you know, if you make it to 100 years old, that's a pretty big deal. And 100 years to be on this earth is a pretty long time. Uh, it's kind of hard for me to even like wrap my mind around that. But yet when you compare that to 1,000 years, let alone four, 6,000 years, then you know, one person's lifetime, whether it's 80 or 100 or 150, uh, that lifetime might as well be just this tiny little drop in a, in a vast ocean. Um, and it, it's kind of a harsh reality to sink in sometimes, but I think it's, it's healthy. We see this um, in Psalm 39, verse, verses 4 and 5 says, Lord, make me aware of my end. <laughs> make me aware of my end and the number of my days so that I will know how short-lived I am. In fact, you have made my days just inches long, and my lifespan is as nothing to you. Yes, every human being stands as only a vapor. Selah. <laughs> so that's a very sobering reflection. But here the psalmist, and I'm not, I, I didn't check to see if this is a psalm of David or not, but uh, the psalmist is, is telling us to, to do that reflection by, by doing that himself. It's, it's, I think, just a helpful reality check. It's healthy. And we need to remember this reality in every situation. So whether we're celebrating accomplishments and landmark occasions like, you know, graduations and weddings and new babies and new jobs, you know, et cetera, all those exciting things. And when we're going through challenging and, and painful times like pandemics and, and sickness and, and death, uh, job loss, betrayal. Um, and thanks for doing that check, Kathy. It is a Psalm of David, which makes it even more ironic, I think, to me, because David, pe many people would look to David and say that he is a very important figure, yet in his own self-reflection, he's realizing that his life is a, a vapor like every other human being's. Even someone as great of a king as David, you know, <laughs> he is, is aware of this humbling reflection. Uh, and really, if you, a lot of the, the moments and, and seasons, even extended seasons of life, um, which we view and experience as just these life changing and earth shattering events, um, even just looking at that in the relation to the rest of our lives, often it's ultimately a fleeting season. It passes, you know, things do go back to normal eventually, and it's hard to even remember the the way it was before but even when the yeah go ahead well i think that we we really resonate with this more than we realize um for instance we talk about high school drama right and we can't <laughs> wait 
Yeah, great example. Drama, right? So high school drama is all this stuff, this crises of this time in high school that's just like seems like the end of the world when you're going through it and anybody who's been through it is like oh don't worry about it It, it'll pass and life will move on and then you have you know that the first major um blowout in your marriage you know where you have a a real uh argument or fight together and it's like the end of your world as a a new married couple i mean if you've been married for 20 years you're like yeah you'll get over it you know you'll work through it keep going you'll you'll make it and so i think that we all look back at certain seasons and we look at other people's circumstances and we see that the, we see the blip in their life because we've lived through it. And we're like, yeah, you'll get past that. Oh, I'm so glad I don't have that in my life anymore. But at the moment, it's like all we can focus on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, there are some times, some things that actually do impact our, our whole lives for the rest of our lives, whether it's, you know, a disability that affects, uh, affects us the rest of our lives or, you know, having kids is a life-changing event. You know, there are things that actually do impact us for pretty much the rest of our lives. Um, but even, even those things compared to the rest of life and the world outside of our own selves, it's still just, just this little blip. And it does sound harsh, but if you notice that um, phrase in Psalms that my life, every human life is a vapor, that sounds really familiar to another book, um, Ecclesiastes. And that's really a big part of, the message of Ecclesiastes, isn't it? Just the, that there's wisdom in realizing how inconsequential we are. Um, and I think that achieves a, a couple of things. I think it is just, it's a reminder not to take ourselves too seriously. Um, it's, it's humbling. But then on the other hand, it helps us to recognize that God really is, he's bigger than time itself. So that makes us realize how tiny we are compared to him. But then that also helps us to fear and appreciate who God is. And ultimately, it's not meant to be a discouragement. It's meant to be humbling, but also really an encouragement, especially during troubling times. Because it means that no matter how bad things get, it reminds me, you know, it's an old adage, this too shall pass. I'm sure most of us have heard that before. And this phrase, unlike, you know, the writing on the wall phrase, it's not directly linked to the Bible, but it, it does, I think, reflect the wisdom in, in Psalms and Ecclesiastes. And it is actually, interestingly enough, it comes from Persian poetry. Um, it's unrelated, but interesting. So people really quote it like a Bible verse. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of phrases like that. Um, but so with all this said, you know, realizing we're inconsequential and that our lives don't matter <laughs> is is only a part of it. What I, I, what I'm not saying is that our lives don't matter. Um, and I'm not saying that every given moment of every day doesn't matter. And I think it's really important to recognize that kingdoms rise and fall, but just because kingdoms rise and fall doesn't mean we aren't meant to interact with those kingdoms and influence those kingdoms or societies and you know god has placed you in this moment of time and in this moment of history and we are we are meant as humans experiencing time to live in each moment and we do so and when we react to life in a way that honors and reflects god um, that means you know we can relish in the small pleasures that he gifts to us. And so we can celebrate momentous occasions and, and give thanks and, and give glory to God for all the ways that he blesses us, whether that's, you know, sun on our face and a beautiful warm day or rain for the plants and, and food in our bellies and roofs over our heads and for family and friends. These are all wonderful blessings that Ecclesiastes again tells us to appreciate and not take for granted. But then it also does mean trusting God when things get tough uh, and, and being op- open to learn and to grow and to repent uh, when necessary be- and just be grateful that God in all his cosmic power and vastness does care for us. And he's big enough to take care of the problems of the world. He may use us in certain ways to do certain things and we need to be sensitive to that. But ultimately, he's in control, and it's not up to us to save the world or save anyone. Um, rather, ask God how he wants us to join him in his work of saving the world. 
So there's just a difference in perspective there. And just when, when times are tough, realizing that God, even though he's so big and we're so small, he does care for us. Uh, even the, to the point of knowing how many hairs are on our head is the phrase used. So we, which is not hard for Mike. <laughs> uh, Fair. Fair. But we just, we need to know that this is true and really accept that. Uh, even when we can't see his whole plan for us, we can't see his whole timeline or, or why we experience certain things or when even we're just living the consequences of sin uh, in a corrupted and, and fallen world. So I know that was kind of a long rant, but hopefully it's helpful. <laughs> and as we wrap up our time, you know, we have to remember that this time that we're reading about in Daniel and, and that whole chart that, that we put up on the screen was a time of, of exile. And that exile was a punishment for the Jews because of the rebellion against God. But it was not to wipe them out. God could have just wiped them out. He did that to some of the Israelites in the wilderness. He could have just wiped them out. Uh, he could have started over. You know, the promise to Noah was that he wouldn't wipe out the whole world again, but he could have certainly wiped out a people and started out with a new people group. But he, he made a promise that he was going to keep. And it really shows, I think, his mercy um, and the reality that he wanted them to repent and to turn back to him. This time of exile was a time for them to recognize their need for him and, their, and, and to choose to follow him uh, above themselves. And so uh, we, we read verses like Jeremiah 29, 11. Uh, I bet there's a bunch of you listening that have this verse somewhere in your house. This has been one of those well-coded verses. Probably um, we don't necessarily take all the context of it when we quote it. Um, but, but Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans that I have for you says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. Um, so during this time of exile, the, Jeremiah leading up to the exile, saying, listen, God was going to put them through the ringer. He was going to put them under oppressive leaders. He was going to have them stretched in ways that they were never stretched before and challenged in ways they were never stretched before, challenged before. And it wasn't to destroy them or wipe them out for what they did. Um, it was so that he could uh, basically refine them so that he could work in their lives to, sh to have them have a future and a hope by reconnecting back to him. And God does care for us and loves us so much that he sent his son to live and to die and to be ri uh, raised again as the firstborn of a new creation, a new Adam, a new human. And thousands of years of God's story are behind us to learn from. And that's huge. But this day or this year, even this century, is really just a speck on the timeline uh, of God and his work and what he's doing. Um, the culmination of God's plan and the promise for humanity has not been fully realized yet. Uh, we need to look forward to that day, but we also need to live faithfully and patiently and thoughtfully like Daniel did in the meantime not with our heads in the sand uh, or apathetic to the world around us, um, not in attacking the world around us uh, and not in making ourselves out to be gods, but in treating every, uh, I should, well, we shouldn't also make, make um, our little situations seem monumental, I guess is another thing to say in that line. We have to realize that God has a purpose for all things. Um, and the pre-exile prophet Micah, reminded Israel um, of really what, what mattered most and encouraged them to focus on what living, focus on living for what really matters the most um, as they entered the exile. Uh, Micah is, is a pre-exile prophet, so they haven't been in exile yet. And he says this, um, O people, in Micah 6, 8, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Um, I think the challenge for us as Christians is to realize that we live in a world that is hostile to our God uh, and 
as we live in that world, we need to make sure that we are doing what is right. So living uprightly, which we talked about in our first John study, that we're uh, exercising mercy um, on those around us, uh, and especially those in the family of faith, but that we're also uh, focusing on walking humbly with our God. And when you look at the history of Israel, that is what God wanted all along. He brought him into the exile and said, I'm doing this so that you learn to trust me. I want you to, to understand that I provide for you and I'm a better provider than you are. I want you to understand that I heal you and I'm a better healer than you are, that I take care of you and I'm a better caretaker than you are, that, that I create and I'm a better creator than you are. And, and all those things God wanted for his people and for us today, um, if we'll simply learn to walk humbly with him uh, and not to get sidetracked on our circumstances. Uh, not to focus on the years of our exile on this earth, but to focus on the eternity that we have uh, with our Father in heaven. And how do we live on this earth to reflect him and to do his mission? Mm -hmm. um, so we have this, I guess, this challenge uh, for us as Christians to find the balance, um, to learn from the examples from others like Daniel, um, and, and even better like Jesus, and to realize that um, how we live makes a difference, but yet our lives compared to God's uh, plan are very uh, small in light of the big picture. We, we are significant because of Christ, um, but our lives only have significance because of the work of God. And so we need to live for those things. So that's our challenge to you this week, um, that as it's easy for us to focus on our circumstances, as it's easy for us to, uh, to get caught up in the events and the timelines around us, to realize that in the meantime, uh, it's not for us to know the seasons or the times or the dates. It's not for us to try to control and manage the universe. It's ours to be walking humbly with God and to do his will uh, on this earth, to join him on his mission, to be light uh, in the world that we live in, to point people to him and not to ourselves. So let's pray for you and, and let's pray for each other in that area. Father, we thank you that uh, there are no surprises to you, that the rising of kingdoms and the falling of kingdoms is at your command, not um, any surprise to you. We thank you that the circumstances that we live in uh, are known to you, not just where we are now, but the purpose that you have behind every one of them. And Father, we come and we repent of wanting to be in control. We repent in reveling in our um, fallacy and the false thoughts of thinking that we are masters of our own destinies at times. And we confess and repent of our pride and arrogance that, that makes us think that our world is the most important world uh, and that our time is the most important season in your plan. So we come before you and acknowledge that you are truly the king of all kings and the ruler of all kingdoms, and that you are the Lord of all lords. And we ask that you would teach us how to submit to your leadership, how to trust your guidance, that as we uh, face our circumstances in the weeks to come and even in the hours to come today, that in all of these things, we would not be filled with any arrogance but that we would truly learn more and more what it means to walk humbly with you and to experience the joy of relationship with you that you've created us for. Help us to share you and your love to the world around us and to be more focused on your mission than on our mission. We pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth here as it is in heaven. We pray that you would do that through us in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.